I hope that the film could serve as a record. Like 50 years later, 100 years later, when people truly wanted to understand the part of history, the official version of history is not the only version. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I am joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. Lisa runs the DuPont Awards and does many other interesting things here in the building. (laughs) Hi, Lisa. Hi, Abby. And tis the season. It is, it is. You're not talking about New Year's, are you? No, I'm not. Although I do wish a very happy New Year to all of our listeners. I'm actually talking about a time even more festive for us over here at the DuPont office. We've just announced our 2020 DuPont Columbia Award winners. Woohoo! And now we're gearing up for the 2020 ceremony in a few weeks. Yes, we are. You can get all the details, a video from this year's co-host, CNN's Christian Amanpour, and a full list of the 2020 winners at www.dupont.org. And in coming episodes, we'll be talking to several of the winners about their outstanding programs. We'll tell you about a few of them at the end of this episode today. But first, there's another season to celebrate. It's Oscar season, which is now in full swing. Both of our recent Film Friday doc series guests have just been shortlisted. It's clearly us. We are the common thread. All you have to do is come screen your film at our Film Friday (laughs) series, and you're basically on your way to Hollywood. That's right. By the way, both of those films were highly journalistic works, and today we're going to hear from one of those shortlisted documentary directors. Yes, director Nan Fu Wang, who was here to show her film One Child Nation to a standing room only crowd. And it was, I would call it a searing investigation into the one child policy that Nan Fu herself grew up under. As you'll hear, it's both highly personal for her as well as a big bigger picture indictment of this painful part of China's history. Yeah, some people may know about this policy, but in case you don't, the one-child policy was government-enforced birth control in China that was meant to curb population growth. There were exceptions, but in many cases, it meant that each family could only have one child. And the stakes were high here. I mean, when it was introduced in 1980, There was a real concern about overpopulation in China and therefore even starvation. And the government was hoping this policy would address that. But there were really devastating effects of this policy as well. It led to things like forced sterilizations, forced abortions, and even the killings of newborns, most of them baby girls, until the policy ended in 2016. So having grown up under this policy, Nan Fu has a real personal and traumatic experience with it. In fact, she interviews her own mother and family. You're going to hear Nanfu talk about this, but one fascinating thing about this film is she also interviews what you would think of as, quote, the bad guys, like government officials and the midwives who carried out these atrocities, and then was surprised to find out it was much more complex than that. So while we wait with our fingers crossed for the announcement of the official Academy Award nominees in just a few days... Take a listen to this Q&A with Nanfu Wang, moderated by Professor Betsy West. And as always, it's an edited version of the conversation. For a Western audience, it's a very shocking look at something that we knew about the one-child policy, but we didn't kind of know how it worked. How surprised were you by what you found when you started looking into this? And I guess, you know, the follow-up to that is, 
How surprised were you about your own family's involvement in this? Yeah. There were things that I knew when I was a child, abortions and sterilizations. It was a very common thing that since I could remember, a lot of um, women in the village would talk about. And then because of that, I never even thought much about like sterilization, like a word that became like a common word that you start you stop thinking about the consequences, the meaning of it. And I remember when I was a child, I would wake up like my mom, my my parents would discuss, oh, the baby is crying outside. Somebody has abandoned the baby. Whose is that? And then the next morning, the whole, like the, the neighborhoods would all gather and look at the baby and try to guess who the baby looks like and whose family abandoned this baby. And this was all very common. So a lot of those discussions and they didn't register until I became a mom myself and I started thinking, what does that mean for mothers and children when you have a newborn, which I, you know, still like every day, I l every moment I leave my son, I feel <laughs> um, kind of sad. Um, the things that I didn't know though was um, when I discovered during the making of the film was the orphanage scandal. Although it was reported, later I learned that by the journalists, by a lot of Western journalists as well. But because the news was censored in China, so I didn't grow up reading it. And when I came to the US, the news were there, but if you don't dig into it, don't try to find it, it's also not available to you. So when I learned that um, as we were researching the film, I was very shocked. Um, and especially a lot of the details, how the government would take away some um, families' children. Oh, yeah. And and then the officials, how guilty and traumatized and painful that they felt and the struggles that they had. I was initially thinking that this is a film that we're going to have perpetrators and victims. And until I met the midwife and the other official, it was that moment I was like, those people are equally victimized as the women who were aborted. And that was when the film's direction also shifted um, to explore why these people did what they did and what is the psychological impact um, the policy had on people. You said that the birth of your son gave you the idea. Um, how did you go about pursuing? Do you do the research here in the United States? Do you head to China? I mean, how does it work to, to, get a, to launch a film like this? Um, so um, when, I, when I found myself pregnant with my son, uh, I remember the first week after the pregnancy was confirmed, uh, a lot of changes went through my head and, it just um, is something that I wouldn't have expected without experiencing that myself. And one thing that I realized was how protective I became. So I started asking my mom what what was like for her when she was pregnant with me. And she started telling me all the stories which I remember I heard in the past when I was little, but never really thought it that way. And so I started thinking about making the film on the one-child policy. But at the time, I didn't know if I would be able to go back to China because of the previous film, Hooligan Sparrow, is very political sensitive. So 
um, there was a lot of um, uncertainty of what what I should do if I would be able to enter China or if I would be able to film in China if they allow me to go in. So I reached out a friend who is a um, filmmaker in China and said, are you willing to do this with me together? And her name is Jalin, a good friend of mine. So she started doing research in China and I was doing research in the US and um, we reached out to several people who we thought were affected by the policy. And after a while, my co-director Jalin also moved to the US. And that was when I started thinking, what if I tried to go back and to try, see how the government would react to me going back. And when my son was four months old, I took him back to China for the first time. And the first time, we only stayed in the village. And my Your family village. Yeah. And my strategy was I'm going to say I'm visiting my family, taking the infant to see grandma and everyone else. And luckily at that time, the government didn't, didn't have any um, direct confrontation or any kind of um, sense of like um, following me. So Were you filming? Yeah, filming within my family and within the village. Within the family. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't go out like to opening, like making the film. And two months later, um, I got an invitation to show my second film in China, which is about America's homelessness and mental illness. And that was an official invitation at Shanghai International Film Festival. So that was when I decided this might be okay. And then I took that opportunity to go back again and filmed more. And so that I kept going back since then. How many times did you go? Four times, four trips. Each trip was about a week. And always with your son? Um, no, twice was with him. And, and yet, as you said, your first film was pretty controversial in China. It's about a Chinese activist and not a favorite of the government's. Um, what precautions were you taking once you were filming outside of your family? Yeah, I learned a lot of lessons making Hooligan Sparrow, and one of them uh, was to make sure to avoid taking public transportation, trains, buses, and staying in the hotel, because we all know, like Chinese, that's when you need to show your ID, and you need to check in your ID to buy tickets. And that way, at least the goal is to stay under the radar as much as possible when filming. So usually I would go relatively like quiet, and I take private transportation, go to the place that I needed to go, and try to avoid being tracked by the government. But that, that didn't always work, right? I mean, you had one time where... It was, it was in the film, the time... Um, it was when the trafficker, he, um, he was on the train, you remember that scene. Right. And I needed to make a decision whether to follow him on the train to see the route where he trafficked the baby from uh, Guangdong province to Hunan province. And it's a 12-hour train ride he used to take every day. And and I wanted to film that because I thought it was a very important part of the story. So we debated a lot and decided, okay, I'm gonna go with him. And that was the first time I sort of like exposed myself to whatever system. So my co-director, Jalin, she was in Massachusetts at the time. And she has a, we have a GPS tracker. So she would monitor me real time um, down to every second where I would be. and. I was on the train, and the idea was to follow him all the way to Hunan. But 
as soon as I got on the train, like probably five minutes later, an officer came to me where I was sitting and asked who I was and asked me to show my ID and ask what my relationship was with him. And I said, well, we are friends. And he said, why are you filming? And I said, I'm documenting our travel experience. And he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to, I made up like a stop that was halfway through. And, uh, and then he left and then another officer came, asked similar questions. And that was when I was afraid that um, they were going to check my name in the system. And I didn't know whether my name is in the system because of a hooligan sparrow or not. So I didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, but I felt I probably should leave now, like should get away from it as soon as possible before it's too late. So when the train arrived in the next station, I quickly just jumped off. Um, I thought it would be in the city, but it turned out to be in the middle of nowhere. It was like suburb, and it was 1 a.m. So I, I jumped off and I realized it was in the woods and the complete like no, you can't see anything. and. I didn't know if I should run or if I should walk. I felt like if I run and the officer, if they, like the train station people saw me and became suspicious, they would come after me. So it's a lot of, uh, um, and then my co-director at the time, uh, I quickly texted her, because we communicate through encrypted messages. And we had prepared always for the worst things to happen in China. and. The precaution that we took was she hired a private driver driving along the railroad, like the route. And the idea is whenever something unexpected happened, the driver would be able to rescue. But because it was so soon then everybody had expected, they were 20, like at least 20 minutes away. So my co-director was contacting them and monitoring where I am in the, on the GPS and trying to identify a location for us to meet. It was a whole night of like, very crazy. Eventually, we decided to hide in the like find a hotel for me to wait, and then in the meantime, to hide the footage in the hotel bathroom. So, like, if any like hotel people report it, if the police show up, at least they wouldn't find the footage, and we can retrieve the footage the next day. So it's like, but that thing eventually ended up like being like what, like a minute in the film. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you must have been tempted when you're editing to make much <laughs> more of it. We knew it wasn't part of the story, so we couldn't like, put it in there. Mm. I mean, uh, beyond the danger to yourself, which, you know, seems uh, considerable, uh, at one point early on, someone says in the film, you know, if you uh, expose, if you get this official in trouble, your mom's going to pay. Yeah. How concerned were you about the repercussions to your family? I talked to, to my family about this, and especially my mom, and um, my, my dad passed away, so I, I have a close uncle, so I talked to them. And they were not so concerned about their like safety, and in terms of the officials in the film, so far, like none of the people in the film had been contacted by the government, so there was no direct contact with them. And we actually showed almost all the people in the film. If it's like the journalist in uh, Hong Kong, the artist in Beijing, people who we had access to, we showed them the full film. And the midwife, we showed them her part and the official 
Um, you showed the official? Their parts. The whole part, her their, part. Their yes, part. her part. Yeah. yeah. Well, fine. And the, the official was fine with we, it. We, the woman who yeah. had run the whole thing yeah. and talked yeah. about because we need to like abortion. We, we had them sign the release after the film was done, like after. So we basically like showed them the part and then asked them to sign the release, and it's striking because to them they looked at it and then they were like, yeah, what I'm saying is the truth, and it was then that it, it, like. I realized that if you look at the, all the people, only the journalists, the artists, and the Utah couple, they were criticizing the policy. And everyone else, no matter how painful, traumatized they are, they kind of eventually concluded that the policy was great and necessary, even though to different extent that they had struggles um, between their own morality and what they had to do. Um, so it was interesting, and it often like also made me think if the government look at it too, um, they can't point at the official or the, because none of them said anything that was criticizing it. And I think what the government would not be happy about is the statements that the filmmakers are making. Um, I'm very interested in the reactions to the film. I mean, starting with the American families who mm -hmm. adopted children from China, I mean, those who have seen this film must be thinking, oh my goodness, maybe the circumstances of my child are different from what I thought. Have you had reactions from? Yeah, from we did. Um, in a lot of like general audience um, screenings in theaters, almost all the time we would have one or two adoptive families and they w would be crying and came to me and it was the first time they started questioning the truths that they held on to for decades and then the film sort of challenged that or raised a question for them to think or face and question that um, you know, ethical dilemma and they might have involuntarily participated in something that they initially thought was a noble thing. Yeah, and and thinking and imagining the on the other side of the world where the birth parents um, might have experienced, I think it was really difficult. And in fact, like in a lot of, in a couple of festivals, they had counselor at the screening and announced at the beginning of the screening saying that um, this film might have like some difficult emotion for people to deal with. And if people wanted to talk ab about it, that the counselor is available after the screening. Yeah. And you said there's not really been a reaction from the government, the Chinese government, is, is that right? Or we knew that the film was censored. Um, when, when Sundance announced that the film was included in January for the premiere, um, you know, in China, Chinese audience knew that there is like Douban, the website that's sort of like equivalent of IMDb. And there were people like who created a page for the film. And within, within the week, the page was taken down, but the title is still there. When you click it, it's just like this page doesn't exist. And, um, and then also right after Sundance, when the film won the Grand Jury Prize there, a, a bunch of Chinese media, because of Sundance is like a prominent festival, they, they also reported on the uh, awardees, the um, award winner. And among the list, One Child Nation was taken away, was the only one where like Grand Jury Prize, it was gone. What about reaction from your family? 
my uh, my mom, she still believed that the policy was good, and we had long arguments all, like all the time. Even she saw the film twice, and three times now, and she still believed that the policy was good. And at first, I was very surprised. How could you see the film and still feel that way? And then I realized also, it is not simply black and white. Um, it's a policy that has been there, and it's very complex. And the film's goal is also not to say like advocate or something, but rather. I hope that the film could serve as a record, let's say like 50 years later, 100 years later, when people truly wanted to explore, uh, understand the part of history, that the official version of history is not the only version, and people can watch this or read more documents, and uh, if this raises a question for people, then they can explore and seek out more and learn about the history. Yeah. It must be tough to have your mom not, <laughs> you know, not seeing your point, right? I mean, you make a film to get your message across. Well, this is just a one of the examples of me and my mom don't agree with each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's not unusual, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to open up the questioning. You know, you have shared a lot, um, fam like shared a lot of story of traumatized families, and I wonder, uh, do you, because you've you've told in the story that um, they don't really have a choice, and do you have a, a theory why you think they don't really have this choice? I struggled a lot to understand too, because I realized when I was filming that everybody had a kind of said the same thing. And as a filmmaker, I struggled. I tried to find someone who can explain things to me so I can explain in the film. And a lot of times, I met all these people, and then they all just like, oh, we don't have a choice. And like, are you sad? Are you like, do you hate the policy? No, I don't. I don't have a choice. Policy is policy. So at some point, I even like felt I wanted to turn off the camera. You know how frustrated you were, like, oh, I can't use this. Like, this person's <laughs> saying the same thing again. Yeah, it just like, and then I, came back and I had a difficult time during the editing. I was like, how am I gonna get through this part? As I couldn't understand why they felt that way. So I did a lot of brainstorming with my co-director, with my husband, and I was like, what would make me abandon my child? What kind of pressure you have to face? You would, you would rather see your child die. Like, I can't explain, and so why don't I just show this, like, in the film and show my frustration. And thus the idea came like to, to find all the different moments from people who said that and then make a montage. And I, when I had the idea, I went to look through all the footage and I was like, oh, I can't believe it. It was more than what I remembered that from officials to regular ordinary people. And it's actually not that uncommon in throughout the history, throughout the world that when people did something that is considered like going against their own interest or human instinct, mm -hmm. the reason that they did it is because they said they were following orders that they don't, they didn't have a choice. Okay, I also grew up in the one-child policy. I'm the only kid, and I actually grew up hear the similar horror stories. So I'm very glad um, someone is keeping it in the film as a memory. As you said, 
people move on very quickly. Um, but also realize this is a big trauma, especially for people who actually go through uh, those separation. And uh, I just wonder, like a therapist will probably patiently wait for a month, two months to talk about something like this. But in this documentary, a lot of people were confronted with hard questions right away. I wonder if you have ever used any tra trauma-informed approach, and if there is any aftercare after the interview. <laughs> Good question. Well, um, I th I wish there were programs, but like for Chinese, you know how rare that is. Trauma is something that didn't have enough care. Um, I mean, China especially, but in many countries. And this kind of a trauma is, uh, is national, is generational, and people don't talk about it. And my family's ongoing, and they've never brought it up like for years. And I think, I can't imagine like how they lived their life with that trauma, the midwife, all of them. I wish that there will be that kind of care program, but the reality there isn't. As a nation, how do we deal with this trauma? Like any ideas or possible solution? I, I, I well, I wish. <laughs> I, I understand <laughs> okay, like, this is but a super I think, big question. I, but I think the first step for a nation, if you would say like to uh, get over or to heal or to recover, I think the first step it has to be, it has to acknowledge it. It has yeah. to be aware of it, and they, and then remember it. That's when the next generation can really like face it. Thank you. Uh, I'm a journalist from China. I'm also a graduate here this year. Just graduated. And I wonder what would you say to young Chinese journalists like me who probably want to unearth the other side of China stories and maybe also to those journalists who are from countries and areas where press freedom isn't such a thing. And when we think about the stories we want to do, we have to think about the repercussion or what consequences we might face and what consequences our families might face. That's something I actually think about, I thought about a lot when I was at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always like if you wanna tell stories that um, not necessarily like what the, the kind of stories that the government wants you to tell is taking risks. But I think it's also testing the boundary, like, um, and also a personal choice, like what is, what is important. And I think if you do choose to do stories that are exposing um, uh, the government's wrongdoings and hold the government accountable, which is what the press should do, then you try to do it, but at the same time, there are ways of uh, protecting your families too. A lot of journalists have done it as like complete, well, you know, uh, the journalist in Hong Kong, he had never used his real name. Um, the name that we're using in the film and the names that he was reporting was always um, a fake name he made up. Activists do that too. Like, um, there were people in Hooligan Sparrow that I've spent months together. The moment I asked them to sign the release, it was a different name and it was completely <laughs> shocking. It was like, what? And uh, that's something, like, I think there are a lot of ways you can try to do the work, but also try to protect yourself. Thank you.
Career-wise, if you really cannot go back to China, do you have a plan B that if you cannot keep on making documentaries? No, I do hope that I will be able to yeah. go back to China. Okay. I think I'll just like make a bunch of uh, one or two films that shows how bad America is, and then they would invite me back. Ah. <laughs> well, your your second film, which really dealt with issues of homelessness and mental illness in the United States, that's why they invited it to to be shown in China. Right. So. Good luck. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. I have read some articles that people are saying that um, in the city, like because you can only have one child, and it actually pushes through the gender equality and feminism work in China. Uh, I don't want to know your views on that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I've I know that um, narrative a lot. A lot of people have said because the girls are the only family, and inevitably the family placed all the resources on the girl which if they had a sibling, they wouldn't have enjoyed that much resources. Um, I recognize that positive side of it, but at the same time, I don't necessarily agree with the people who think because of that, then the, pos the policy itself is positive because I believe that kind of a logic is not that far from thinking if a government is allowed to intervene and eliminate certain amount of people, then the next step, or not far from it, is to say we can get rid of the less intelligent, um, less good looking, and so the higher quality, quote unquote, their life would be improved, they can enjoy more resources, because they are, the line is not that you know, clear between those things. I, I believe like, women's status still needs to be improved in China, and that's something a society should work with, but not taking this extreme policy that's a violation of basic human rights. Thank you. So as a journalist, also from China, I wonder what was the research and reporting process like for this film? Like, how did you approach all the sources? What individual or organizations helped you the most for that? And like, what are the challenges? Thank you. Yeah, so um, when we started, we knew that we wanted to get a 360-degree like view of the policy, whether it's a woman who got sterilized or an official who had implemented or worked on it. And we filmed with activists, too. We filmed with human rights lawyers, too, who represented the cases. And the editing process was really like narrowing down of like how much of the two people's story are repetitive and then how do we um, condense the whole story, but also try to give it, um, you know, extensive um, understanding of the full scale of the policy. Thank yeah. you. I would, I was just wondering, what if uh, there were not this uh, birth control policy, and people may be starved to death because we we saw a lot of cases in China uh, in the <coughs> maybe third, uh, three decades before. Yeah, one thing that like we know is even among economists, anthropologists, um, they have a lot of debate of to what extent the one-child policy had contributed to the economy or did it contribute to the economy at all? Because there are also economists who argue that China's economy, the progress was mainly because of the cheap labor they had. So to the opposite, if it had more people, the economy would have grown much faster. No matter what, would happen to China, whether it's really like there is a lack of resources. Um, 
the reproductive rights is something that is the human as a basic human rights is something that should be the person's own choice. And in terms of how to develop the economy or to develop the resources, that's something else through other measures that the whole country and the people could figure out. And it's not by limiting or taking away the choices from them. That's something that I think, as a person, I believe. Well, um, that was fascinating. Thank you for this. Thank you, Nanfu Wang, for that really enlightening conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. She's clearly such a brave, courageous filmmaker. Just hearing everything that she had to go through to make it, the danger she put herself in, and, and potentially her family, it's, it's extraordinary. We loved having her here, and we're keeping our fingers crossed again that we'll see her up on stage soon, accepting an Oscar for this shocking film. And we're also rooting for our other film Friday screening this fall, too, which was Knock Down the House, directed by Rachel Lears, who showed the film and then talked to our students about it in November. And we may have an upcoming podcast episode about it as well. Speaking of awards, we want to congratulate all of the winners of our very own DuPont Columbia Awards, which we recently announced. Some of this year's winners include the biggest international stories, like 60 Minutes reporting on migrants on the Texas border and CNN's coverage of the disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's an amazing group of yeah. winners, and we're thrilled that Christian Amanpour and Michael Barbaro are going to be up here in a few weeks to help us celebrate. So for a full list of winners, visit www.dupont.org, as we said earlier, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at, at Columbia Journal. For more information about Nan Fu Wang and her film, One Child Nation, visit our website, onassignmentpodcast.org, where we'll provide some links. I'm pretty sure you can see the film if you have a Prime account on Amazon. Yeah, that's right. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Christina Shaman. We should thank our DuPont fellows, Carissa Quimbao and Jack Rossiter-Munley. And of course, our production goddess, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our sound engineer was Ariana Sullivan, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Until next time. Mm-hmm.